0: and uh, return to your seat. We'll get started here in a minute. Well, what a wonderful day to be together. Uh, both because of uh, the weather today, but far, far more. uh, The reason we're gathering here, celebrating Christ's resurrection. Uh, For those of you that are part of this church, uh, welcome. Those of you that are not, we're glad you're visiting. Uh, Thanks for joining us today. Uh, What we're celebrating today uh, is so good and so significant and so meaningful, it's really hard to get our minds fully around it. Uh, That because Christ died and rose, uh, everything essentially has been turned in reverse. The trajectory of our world has been changed because of what happened through Christ's death and resurrection and I hope to do uh, somewhat justice to this story this morning of what Christ has accomplished for us. Uh, as Graham uh, mentioned earlier, we're walking through uh, the Gospel of Luke uh, over this past week, the account there of Christ's death and resurrection and we're going to go into Luke chapter 24 this morning, kind of picking up the story. Uh, where Graham left it off uh, during the reading, uh, during the worship, uh, during the singing portion. Now, we're also uh, making a little bit of a a jump in our teaching series. Uh, For the past few weeks, we've uh, been in a series called Encountering God, and we've been looking at stories of people who encountered Jesus in the Gospels. And before today, all these stories were people who encountered Jesus before his death and resurrection. And starting with today, we're going to begin considering people who encountered Jesus after his death and resurrection. Now, in every story, you never find people ambivalent in their response towards Jesus. Uh, But that much more so when you're encountering someone who rose from the dead. And so we're going to see the difference that meeting the risen Christ makes in a life. Um, So, if you, is this just me or is this sinking? If I start uh, sitting down, you'll know why. All right. Uh, Luke chapter 24. And uh, we're going to pick up the story in verse 13. And I'm going to read through to verse 35. Now, this is one of my favorite stories in the gospel. It's one of the longest narratives uh, in the book of Luke. And uh, it's it's just so good. What happens in this story, you can just so, so see yourself in it. And so I hope you'll really enjoy this story. And put yourself in the story as we read through. That very day... And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? (laughs) I love that. And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him, They did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Lord, we are so grateful uh, that you have uh, not only died for our sin, but Lord, you have risen victoriously. God, we know that Jesus is alive today. So Lord, we invite you today to do the work that only you can do. God, open our eyes uh, to see you for who you really are, Uh, stir our hearts uh, to know that you are with us, and God, I pray uh, that you would be changing our lives, to be conformed more to the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So thank you. Lead us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, How many of you here enjoy watching uh, home improvement shows? I figured I'd have a few uh, fellow aficionados. Uh, Our family has long enjoyed these. Um, Back in the day, it was uh, Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Uh, We had Ty Pennington... And uh, they do this home renovation during the week. And you remember the, the catch line at the end of the show? They'd say, move that bus. Okay, there you go, move that bus. The bus would pull away. The house is there in all its glory. Um, of late, our family has been enjoying um, Maine cabin masters. I hear some, sh- some chuckles, okay. Some of you have seen it. My wife's from Maine, and uh, so we kind of you know, really resonate with the, uh, the backwoods Maine vibe. And it's a real fun show watching these cabins in their before state. And then all fixed up into their after state. There's something compelling about stories of before and after. You know, pictures of transformation. I mean, on all those shows, the plot's basically the same. You know, the story opens with: here's some pictures of the house before. They come in, you know, all throughout the show, they're working on the house, then the big reveal. After. Um, same plot line, it never gets old. I love seeing stories of before and after. And when it comes to uh, this text, and frankly, when it comes to the whole story of the Bible, uh, this is what we see. We see stories of before and after. And what takes place in the middle is the resurrection. That the resurrection of Jesus is so profound that it transforms lives. We just consider the disciples. These are guys who, as Jesus died, they think, you know what, Uh, we had a good run, I'm not sure what's going to happen now, though, and they they flee in fear. So the disciples are all hiding uh, because they see what happened to Jesus. Then all of a sudden, we see the very same guys who are running in fear, boldly proclaiming the truth about Jesus just a few days later. You know, what happened to create such a change? It can't be explained apart from a dramatic event, the resurrection. They truly believe Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, what we get in this story today is an intimate picture about how Jesus comes and reveals himself to two people. And we get to see uh, the inner workings of how they began to see that Jesus actually was alive. Now this story is both actual, it is a historical event that really took place. But it's also more than that. It's almost like an archetype. It's, it's showing what happens in our lives as our eyes become open to the reality of the risen Christ. So I hope today you'll see uh, this story through both of those lenses. The historical lens that this story happened and the story of your life, what Jesus wants to do in your life. So let's kind of consider the, uh, the context here. Um, when did this take place? Well, at the beginning of this passage, it says on the same day. So this is the Sunday that Jesus rose. And uh, already um, the women, three women have gone to the tomb and his body wasn't found there. Uh, An angel told the women that he had risen. Uh, They go back, tell the rest of the the group gathered, no one believes them. The story is like too amazing. Oh man, you must have gotten it wrong. They don't believe the first people who hear of the risen Christ. And then uh, these two people who were part of Jesus' company, they were in the room, when the women shared this testimony. They said, you know what? Um, we gotta get going. We gotta return. So they're, they're heading to uh, the village of Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now we're not sure of this, but I think from this text, we get the sense that this is their hometown. I think that because they host Jesus at the end of the story. They welcome him in for dinner. Um, they're playing the host. So I believe this is their home that they're bringing him into. So you have these two people, who are returning from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And the question is, why are they leaving Jerusalem at this time? Why are they returning? I mean, they've just been told Jesus might be alive. Seems like an odd time to be like, well, let me know how it goes. You know, they they leave the center of the activity to go back to Emmaus. Now, I think the clue here is in verse 21, when they say to Jesus and answer his question about what's happened They say, we had hoped that he, he being Jesus, was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. Hear the past tense there? We thought he was the one. We thought Jesus was going to conquer all our enemies and set up God's kingdom here and now in full. We had hoped this would happen. It didn't. At this point, these disciples are disillusioned and discouraged And they're headed home. In a sense, they're leaving the church. The community of faith is in Jerusalem, and they're saying, it was a good run. We'll see you later. And they're heading back to Emmaus. So as they are walking away from Jerusalem, from the other disciples, Jesus comes to them. So here's where we see kind of the first before picture in this story. Um, The before picture is the fact that they don't see what is true. Uh, In this story, this is the before. These two disciples are, in a sense, blind. They can't see reality. They can't see that it's Jesus who's actually there. They can't see him for who he really is, which begs the question, why can't they? Why don't they recognize Jesus in the story? And, And for that matter, this happens almost every time the resurrected Christ appears to somebody in the scriptures, that there's not an immediate physical recognition. So what is going on? Why why don't they recognize Jesus? And I think there's three things that are all going on at the same time. First, his resurrected body looked different. Jesus' resurrected body was not the same in appearance as it was prior to his death and resurrection. Now there's a lot of similarities. We know from later in the story that Thomas, who's doubting uh, the, the resurrection reality, actually sees Jesus' wounds and recognizes, oh, it really is him. So Jesus still has the wounds from, prior, from his uh, crucifixion. So there are some things that are the same. But in other ways, he's very different. We know that he can pass through walls. He can be one place and then suddenly in another place. His body is very different. In reading this story, I made my mind flash back to the uh, 1980s movie uh, starring Tom Hanks, uh, Big. You guys remember that movie? Uh, Tom being this uh, youthful, uh, uh, very youthful character at the time, who dreams of being older. He makes that wish, you know, I want to be grown up. And he wakes up one morning to find himself in the 30-year-old's body. Same guy, in some ways, same body, just different. And not that this is exactly what's happening here, but (laughs) Jesus is the same, but somehow his body is different. Um, Now... This is like uh, an aside, almost like message number two, so I apologize to make it a little bit longer, but I have to articulate this point. Jesus rose bodily. If Jesus didn't rise bodily, we have no real Christian hope. Jesus did not just arise spiritually. Today, we're not just saying how wonderful it is that Jesus' spirit lives on in the world. What the scriptures are claiming, and we've put our faith in, is that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. And this really does change everything. Um, It changes how we even view the future. We're not just, when we die, bodies that go into ground, and then spirits that live on forever. And I actually think that's the predominant view, even in the church. Uh, There's a lack of discipleship here in this regard. We just think about our eternity being the spiritual reality. It's no surprise that most of us don't really look forward to it. Because an awful lot of the things we want are very tactile, physical, bodily things. And the hope of the resurrection is that just as Jesus rose bodily, so will we. That we have a bodily future ahead. That right now, we're in the in-between time. That when we die, our, our spirits go to be with the Lord. But when Jesus returns, there will be a resurrection of the body. And that turns everything around. Even this world is made new. The future we have in store is a physical, bodily reality. Uh, Let me read you a a verse so you believe it's not just my opinion on this. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44. Paul writes, Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies but they'll be raised as spiritual bodies. That's the phrase there. That's our future. Our bodies made whole, right, spiritually, physically. We had a great future to look forward to because of the resurrection. All right. Sermon's over. Back to the the first sermon. (laughs) All right. Uh, Why didn't these disciples recognize Jesus? First, his body um, was different. It's this spiritual body telling us what ours will be like in the future also. Secondly, They didn't expect the Messiah to die and rise. These disciples had no frame of reference for a Messiah who would die on the cross and then rise from the dead. I mean, this is the last thing on their minds that they would meet Jesus on the road. Because if they met him resurrected, not only did it mean he came back from the dead, which doesn't happen very often, but it also meant that the Messiah was crucified. In their mind, I think that was an even bigger obstacle the resurrection. They could not fathom a Messiah who would die on the cross. So even though, um, you know, uh, they had heard him talk about this, they just could not fathom it. Their expectations were off. Now, this happens many different ways in life that our expectations can actually guide our sight, rightly or wrongly. Uh, Back in 2011, Uh, The Washington Post conducted a now-famous social experiment uh, in which an internationally acclaimed violinist named Joshua Bell, uh, he dressed up in street clothes, and then he played his violin, which, by the way, was a $3.5 million violin, uh, outside a train station in downtown D.C. And they counted, over 1,000 people walked past Joshua as he played. And just the night before, he had played to a sold-out show in Boston, Average ticket price, over $100. This guy is a virtuoso. But yet here he is, playing on a street corner, and no one recognizes him, because they don't expect someone of his stature to be playing there. So people just pass him by as if he's an ordinary street musician. our expectations really do affect our sight. And I'm guessing if we were to talk this morning about our expectations, we find a lot of different ones in the room today. Um, Maybe for some of you in the room today, your expectations are affecting your sight currently about who Jesus really is, and his presence in your life today. Now maybe for some of you here today, um, maybe you have a very naturalist worldview, where in your mind what can be seen and measured composes reality. And that expectation of a worldview that is only a naturalist worldview is limiting on your ability to see Jesus, for he is more than what can be measured and seen scientifically. And we have to call into question are our expectations uh, guiding us towards all of reality? For others of you in the room today, maybe that's not an issue. You do believe um, in more than a naturalist worldview, and you do believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But maybe there's a lack of expectation about his presence with you today. That he really is alive, not just somewhere out there, but here today, wanting to walk with us, to work in our lives, to guide us, to change us. I guarantee you, your expectation about Jesus' presence will guide your ability to see him. I mean, Jesus has promised some big things in the scriptures. He said, I will be with you always till the end of the age. He said, "I will send my Spirit to you." He said, "Where two or three of my followers are gathered, there I am with them." He said, "When we minister to the least, in the poor, in the oppressed, we're ministering to Jesus." If all these things are true, then Jesus is with us. The question is, do we see him? Do we see him? Our expectations affect our sight far more than we realize. So uh, these disciples struggled to see Jesus because his resurrected body looked different, because they didn't expect the Messiah to die and rise, and third, because God kept them from recognizing Jesus at this point in the story. Notice the language in the story. It said their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus. It wasn't just that they didn't want to. There's divine action that's going on. And isn't that interesting? Why would Jesus want them to not recognize him at this point? I mean, if I were Jesus, and that line probably should never exist, if I were Jesus, but if I were, and I rose from the dead, the first thing I would do would go to the most public place possible. I'd go to the temple, or I'd go to Herod's palace, or Pilate's palace, and say, you know, see, told you, that's not what Jesus does. He does not do that. He goes to these two disciples who are disillusioned and are walking away. And he comes to them. And he wants to work with them, but in a way that causes true faith, true sight. See, if he was to fully uh, reveal himself at this point, the disciples would say, oh, great, you're alive. Now, back to our agenda for you. We'd like the Romans out. Is, Is that your plan now? But he has to work with them. On their sight, their expectations, so they can truly receive him for the Lord that he is. So Jesus keeps them from recognizing him at this point in the story. So we've considered the before picture. Now let's now lean in a little to the, how they encounter Jesus. There's four ways that we see Jesus encounter them in the story. Uh, Jesus transforms them uh, in four ways. First thing Jesus does. Jesus drew near and walked with them before they even recognized him. Isn't this cool? They're not searching for Jesus. They think he's dead. But he comes, draws near, and walks along with them. There's a quote I've I've, uh, loved for a long time. I can't remember where I first found it, but I remember the author. It's Simon Tugwell. And he says this. So long as we imagine it is we who have to look for God, we must often lose heart. But it is the other way around. He is looking for us. What we see in this story is a God who comes searching, is a savior who draws near. These disciples are in their place of sadness, of doubt, of disillusionment, and Jesus draws near to them. I have no reason to think he's not doing the same thing with us. In our places of sadness, doubt, and disillusionment, Jesus is drawing near. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. So this begins by Jesus drawing near to the disciples even before they recognize him. Second way we see Jesus encounter the disciples is that Jesus asked them questions. Uh, Jesus is walking with them, and he essentially says, what you guys talking about? First words to these, these disciples after his resurrection. Yeah. What are you talking about? Um, no, His first words weren't, let me tell you what I did. What are you guys discussing? And there were, I love their response. You know, are you the only person in Jerusalem that hasn't heard the news? Don't you have a news feed? How did you not see this? Jesus is feigning ignorance to draw out a dialogue. He, then they, he responds to them. Um, well, what things? What took place? And that's when they launch in to their recounting of the events, which is what Jesus wanted them to do. Because their events tell their perspective and reveal their hopes. And when their hopes are revealed, now there's an opportunity for their hearts to really be worked on. So Jesus encounters them by asking questions. Questions. Jesus does this not just after his resurrection. He does it through the Gospels all through. He's the master question asker. Um, some of life's deepest questions, I think, are actually being sparked by God in our hearts and our minds. That God wants us to wrestle, to question, to dig into the significant things of life. And God meets us there in those questions. Questions should not be avoided, they should be leaned into. I think for those of you who are also followers of Jesus, this should inform also how you tell others about Jesus. Um, More than just saying, here's what is true, which that does need to be said, we also need to be good at, even more so, asking good questions. A deep, uh, good friend of mine named Paul Voltmer, uh, he's a pastor from Vermont, he describes evangelism like this. Evangelism is all about listening for the conversation that the Holy Spirit is having with every person on this planet and waiting for the opportunity to be invited in because no one likes someone who barges in on their conversation. And so it's through questions that we discern how is the Holy Spirit working in the life of this person? And through questions, we come along graciously. Jesus asked questions in the encounter. Thirdly, Jesus explained from the scriptures the necessity of the cross. He asked questions, but he also had really good answers. Jesus explained the necessity of his cross. This was their big barrier to belief in Jesus, as it is for all of us. The cross is the the most significant event and the most mind-blowing and conceptually hard to understand event in the history of the universe. That a perfect God would come and die on a cross on our behalf. And somehow that event is solving the largest issues of the world. That's what Jesus is claiming. And he walks his disciples through the scriptures to explain, here's why the cross is necessary. I would have loved to have been there at that conversation. To have heard Jesus unpack the Old Testament scriptures. Explain how they all are fulfilled in what he did on the cross. Explain that we live in a world that was created good. Yet yet this world, all of us in this world, have gone astray. We we all know we live in a world that's broken. And the Bible describes what has gone wrong in the world. And what's gone wrong in the world is what's gone wrong in the human heart. That all of us have decided to live according to our own understanding of what is right and what is good. Instead, according to the understanding of the God who made everything. But Jesus has come, and he has come to restore, to heal, to forgive. And in the cross, we see these paradoxical things pulled together. The injustice of the world, the justice of God, the holiness of God, the sin of human beings. And it comes together in the cross, and Jesus perfectly pays for sin, perfectly expresses God's love. And when we understand what Jesus did for us on the cross, we find, Things begin to change. The disciples said, our hearts were burning within us as we heard the truth of the cross explained from Jesus. You see, it does no good to understand the resurrection until we understand the cross. The cross lets us know what's gone wrong. And then the resurrection confirms that what Jesus did on the cross worked. It is finished. And he's vindicated in his resurrection. Jesus explained from the scriptures the necessity of the cross. But there's still something else. At this point, their hearts are burning within them, but they still haven't recognized Jesus. So they uh, get to where they're going. They get to Emmaus. And there's a funny little interchange here where um, the disciples invite Jesus in. And he says, no, 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 no. You know, I'll, I'll pick up, take out somewhere else. I'll, I'll get a room in Bethlehem. Hopefully there's, there's, some, there's some room there this time. And he, he didn't say that. That's my addition. But he... He's hoping, and he's kind of acting like, I'm going to move on. And they say, no, 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 please stay with us. And so he, they prevail. He does stay with them. He comes in. Um, they put food on the table. He prays, blesses the meal, and then begins to break the bread, and it says, and their eyes were opened. In the breaking of the bread, their eyes were opened. They recognize, it's Jesus. All along, all day, it's been Jesus with us. And the question is, what was it about the breaking of bread that opened their eyes. And the scripture doesn't tell us exactly. You know, maybe it was that as Jesus prayed uh, for the meal, and they remembered how he prayed, and his prayer to the Father before them you know, reminded them and kind of brought them in to that reality of Jesus' relationship with his Father. Or maybe it was the reminder of the Last Supper as he broke the bread. They remembered how Jesus broke the bread and said, this is my body given for you. Or maybe this was simply the moment that Jesus chose to open their eyes. I think it's that. I think Jesus chose this moment to open their eyes. He waited till they were gathered around a table together. What does this tell us about Jesus? About his desires? That the moment of his revelation to them came around an intimate meal at a table. You know, some of my best memories in life are on a table. Family meals, anniversary dinners, uh, camping trips at a picnic table. Uh, My wife and I spent a long time yesterday preparing a table for an Easter dinner today. There's something about a meal with people that you love that is the stuff of life, the deepest stuff. You see, our, our desires for a great dinner with family and friends are put there by the God in whose image we're made. We're made in the image of a triune God. And God desires this very thing. In Revelation chapter three, verse twenty, we get an amazing uh, glimpse into Jesus' heart for us. Revelation, yes, has things about the future, but it also describes what Jesus is saying to His church today. And there's seven letters in Revelation two churches, Jesus saying, here's what I desire for you and from you. And in Revelation 3.20, he says this to his people, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Isn't that amazing that what God desires is a meal with us? What God desires is an intimacy of connection and fellowship and love. And we see this. That's when Jesus chose to reveal himself in the story. That's what he desires most. Then we come to the after portion of this story. That after Jesus broke the bread, their eyes were opened, they saw Jesus with them for who he really is. They saw him. And we begin to see everything in their lives changing because they recognized who he was. Prior, they were running away from Jerusalem, disillusioned, discouraged. All of a sudden, within the same hour, they run another seven miles back to Jerusalem just to be with their community of disciples and let them know that Jesus had actually risen. That's quite a change. Seeing Jesus for who he really is not only changed their view of Jesus, it changed everything else. C.S. Lewis famously said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. When we see Jesus for who he really is, it's like the sun's come up, and we begin to see everything in life differently. We begin to see the things that we previously wanted, that Christ says not to do, and we thought were good things, we begin to see them as bad things. We begin to see other people as dear and treasured to God, not just problems to avoid. God begins to change how we see life when we begin to see Jesus Rightly. You know, this has been the experience of so many people who encounter Jesus throughout the ages. They really do find a before and after story taking place in their lives. And usually at the center of that story is some form of eyes being opened to the reality of Jesus. Uh, There's an author and artist uh, named Jackie Hill Perry. And uh, she's written a number of articles and books. And she describes her coming to faith in a profound way Uh, She grew up in a very difficult situation uh, with much abuse um, and then seeking um, significance and meaning and relationships apart from Christ. And then when she was 19, God opened her eyes. And this is how she describes being to see Jesus rightly. She said, in October 2008, at the age of 19, my superficial reality was shaken up by a deeper love, one from the outside, one that I've heard of before but never experienced. For the first time, I was convicted of my sin in a way that made me consider everything I loved and its consequences. I looked at my life and saw that I had been in love with everything except God. And these decisions would ultimately be the death of me, eternally. My eyes were opened and I began to believe everything God says in his word. I began to believe that what he says about sin, death, and hell were completely true. And amazingly, At the same time that the penalty of my sin became true to me, so did the preciousness of the cross. A vision of God's Son crucified, bearing the wrath I deserved in an empty tomb, displaying his power over death. All the things I had heard before without any interest had become the most glorious revelation of love imaginable. Now I know for many of you, you have a similar story. You see, for anyone that follows Jesus Christ, there is some level of similarity with that story, yet totally unique. And over the next uh, few weeks here, we're gonna have the privilege of hearing a number of these stories. We wanna hear how people in this church have encountered Jesus Christ and are encountering Jesus Christ. How God is writing a before and after story in the lives of people here. We're gonna have some interviews and testimonies And I'm really looking forward uh, to hearing these accounts. Because the truth of what we read in Luke 24 is not just that Jesus rose and changed a couple lives 2,000 years ago, but that Jesus is alive today. And he is doing the same thing today. He is drawing near to us in our doubt, in our sin, in our disillusionment. He is beginning to open our eyes, to stir our hearts, and change our lives. This is what Jesus died and rose to accomplish. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, how thankful.